Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension soybean specialist, Dr. Sean Castile, Purdue Extension corn specialist, Dr. Dan Quinn, and their guest, Purdue Extension weed specialist, Dr. Bill Johnson. On this episode number 27, Johnson talks about weeds and high input prices. We're already on November 22nd, we're hearing about glyphosate prices at 60 bucks a gallon. 18 months ago, glyphosate prices were 10, 10 bucks a gallon. So it's, it's, it's increased by sixfold in just 18 months. And of course, we'll have an update on Harvest 2021. Now on Purdue Crop Chat, here's your host, who's your ag today's, Eric Pfeiffer. Well, we do have listeners of this podcast, but perhaps USDA might be one of them now after hearing uh, Sean and Dan talk about yields here for the past few months. Sean, for a little while longer. We, uh, <laughs> We got a reduction in yield on this last uh, last uh, uh, report earlier this month, and uh, I am here with the stars of the show, Dan Quinn, Purdue Extension Corn Specialist. Hello, Dan. Hey, Eric. And Purdue Extension Soybean Specialist, Sean Castile. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. Sean Sean is back with us this month. He, he uh, skipped out on us last month. I heard uh, Cambrado is here. I was like, no, I can't handle being in the same room as him. <laughs> so, so go ahead. I know you listen. Give, give us your critiques. Oh no! I think I'm shocked. I've been invited back. I swear, Cambrado would stay here, and uh, he'd be the new star. I I, I kind of figured he'd say there wasn't enough soybean talk. I figured that's where it was going to go. But uh, uh, there's they always have more soybeans, like more cowbell, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But but it, anyway, in in this past crop production report from USDA earlier in the month, uh, they did take yield down for both corn and soybeans. Corn, uh, if this uh, level is realized, would still be a record. 189 bushels per acre, that is two bushels higher than last year's yield, but down five from last month's forecast. Dan, let's talk about it here real quick. Uh, it just seems like maybe they listened, maybe they tuned in. We, It's not like we've been down on this corn crop because we're still expecting a potential record yield. And I know a lot of folks are still very happy. And as we are wrapping up harvest, we're we're doing this recording, by the way, early Monday afternoon, so we don't have the, the harvest uh, progress update at this point. But I suspect it will be largely close to complete. What are your thoughts here as, uh, as they lower that level? Um, I think, you know, looking at it, it kind of came down to exactly what we thought it was going to be. I think maybe we should go back and look at those receipts, you know, on those last few podcast episodes we did and see what my number was, but I think it was, it was pretty close at 188, 189 bushels per acre. Um, but you know, even though it's coming down, the important point is still that it's still tied for state record yield averages. So yields, you know, we've been, some of the trials we've harvested across the state been pleasantly surprised with some of these yields. Some of these yields, you know, 200, 250, 260 in those high ranges. But again, I think it just has to come due to, you know, some of the variation across the state due to we had, you know, drought issues, you know, September where it got really hot and dry on us, but also to tar spot in areas. So tar spot in the northern part of the state. So yields are probably all over the board. There's some areas that just wasn't as good as what guys had hoped it was, but there's also a lot of areas where guys were very pleasantly surprised, you know, that they were much higher than they thought they were. Now, you mentioned that you've got one more trial that you need to get out uh, here tomorrow, and I think that yeah. that's kind of the case. They're just wrapping up here around yeah. the state with harvest. Yeah. Uh, that wet weather, though, man, it, it was it was crazy. We'd get a, a, a dry stretch and yeah. then just an absolute wet stretch, and uh, then we'd get another dry stretch, but it took a lot took up a lot of that dry stretch to actually 
dry down and get back in the field. So I, I imagine, you know, that's kind of what you've been running into. Yeah, we had, you know, a couple of weeks ago where we just couldn't get any harvest done. Um, we were kind of out for a whole week, but this last week we were able to get back in the fields and get harvested. Um, so we're pretty close to wrapping up with our research trials. And you look at, you know, I think we're at last week's report, 85% harvested. I expect that to be pretty close to getting finished up here this week. Um, but that's about at the five-year average. Uh, the week before we were actually fairly behind the five-year average so we picked up recently so um yeah it just came back to those rains and and guys just getting delayed and they just couldn't get in the fields to finish up now over to donnie downer over here sean castile he's been uh he's just been down on this soybean crop all year it's just been a year full of doubts uh and and they usda they were still predicting a record yield yeah, but they were but I, uh, I, now I'm we're backing off. I'm just shocked that I'm Donnie now. I think I was Debbie last, so I, I've got to have some identity <laughs> I, issues I, here. <laughs> and so I need to come and have some therapy sessions with you, Eric, and kind of work through this if we can. <laughs> but at least, at least we've come to that that place. Um, you know, maybe I'm a little more real realistic with where the, this crop has been. I mean, it certainly had the potential in a lot of areas to, to be high yielding, and it was in a lot of areas. But for the vast majority of the state, I just hadn't seen it all summer long. Um, again, I, I'm a rinse and repeat. It's this mid-June to mid-July. It was just tough, wet feet in a lot of areas. And so I think a lot of what uh, has come through with um, the USDA's number, right? And we were at 60 bushel the month before now, 57 bushel. Still really respectable for a state-level yield. It's not the highest. Our highest was 57 and a half uh, to that point. Um, but I think a lot of this came into we're harvesting later planted crops, so those yields aren't as high. We've got those areas that it took a while to get into that were wet from the harvest you already talked about with Dan. Um, and then you you put that, that's also areas that were probably wetter during the summer, so all that's coming into the, the parts of the fields or the fields that were not as good. Um, we did have some exceptional yields when we talked about some of the, the garden spots like the south. Southwest, I mean, I've heard guys, I mean, top record, like 90, 94 bushels farm average, not field average. It's remarkable on some of these fields. Um, but, yeah, I think that now we're coming into the later planted crop that's out there, the one that's been standing. And, unfortunately, insult to injury is uh, we get these long wet periods and we get the wet dry cycles that you've talked about. Mm -hmm. These beans start throwing. They start throwing those pods. I mean, they're in just survival mode of essentially the plants wants to survive. And so it's throwing those seeds. So we've lost a little bit on the ground. Maybe the yield was even there, but now what's getting harvested is we're losing a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, it just, uh, I think I think guys went a lot later than they wanted to, especially mm -hmm. if that early harvest window, they thought, man, we're kind of smooth sailing. And then yep. just got wet on us. Just yeah, and wet. there's nothing you can do about it, right? I mean, you start, we got a nice sunny day, but it's still cold, 48 degrees, and the number of hours that we've gotten, by the time we're ready to harvest soybeans, you're about ready to shut down for the day with the time of the year that we've got. Well, last month we tackled fertilizer prices, and uh, that's that's been, you know, out there in the news it's it's a big deal input costs are just rising dramatically already for next year uh we're having we're, we're seeing similar issues with herbicides so we wanted to bring in a special guest on this month's podcast and uh, we have bill johnson here uh professor of weed science did i get that right that is correct okay so bill's here and uh Bill, what's going on? You can explain this whole thing to us, right? You're, you're, you're tracking all of the containers that are coming overseas and everything to see where all this product is, right? I've got them all barcoded. <laughs> He's got 18 monitors up on the wall. He's just standing around looking at them all. 
just like watching the stocks. <laughs> um, well, so we're, we're hearing that there are a number of different causes for the, uh, the, the spike in herbicide prices and, and the herbicide shortage. So it ranges from everything to um, not being able to get containers unloaded at the ports to a shortage of, of trucks and truck drivers to, to get them to the uh, formulation plants, to shortages of the formulation materials, to even shortages of the materials that they're packaged in. So it's kind of all over the board. And, and this is kind of what happens when 80% of, of your main active ingredient, glyphosate, comes from overseas. It's going to be subject to a number of different things that can, that can affect the uh, availability of this product to the growers. And to think about it from a, from a cost standpoint, we're already on November 22nd, we're hearing about glyphosate prices at 60 bucks a gallon. Um, 18 months ago, glyphosate prices were 10, 10 bucks a gallon. So it's, it's, it's increased by sixfold in just 18 months. We're hearing that uh, by the time we get to delivery next um, spring, it could be as high as $80 a gallon. We're also hearing that many of the retailers are not gonna set a glyphosate price until they actually have the inventory on their docks and so I think there's a lot of uncertainty there and and what we're we're trying to do through these uh, these winter months is really kind of get people prepared for making uh, alternative plans in the event that, that glyphosate and then secondarily glufosinate is the other big active ingredient if both of those active ingredients are in short supply um, they dominate the landscape in terms of post-emergence weed control, and then certainly from a burndown standpoint, glyphosate is a very important component there. But those two active ingredients are sprayed on nearly every corn and soybean acre at least once in the uh, corn and soybean producing regions. Yeah, I, I hear that with you know with fertilizer that there's plenty there. It's just going to cost you an arm and a leg. Uh, there, there might be some shortage of availability in some areas, but it sounds like there's, there's still some out there. But you're saying that it may not even be available for folks. That's correct. That's what we're hearing. Uh, most of these retailers now would be able to unload their warehouses because growers are, have put a high demand on storing their own herbicides, so they have it for next year. And many of these retailers basically have empty warehouses. Um, to kind of also put it in perspective, if you, if you think about our farm stores, um, I was down at Rural King yesterday. Uh, Rural King limits customers to two, two and a half gallon jugs of glyphosate per customer per day. So they are already rationing glyphosate out of the farm stores on, on more uh, consumer sized uh, containers. So people are going in there with fake mustaches trying to get, you know, four or six. <laughs> Is that Debbie or Donnie that's doing that? <laughs> yeah, or they're, they're bringing their, their children and their relatives in yeah. with them. Yeah, that sounds like a fun Thanksgiving trip. Get the family together and go and by their state. Yeah. Yes. So, so you talk about alternate plans. Uh, let's talk about some of those. What are some of the alternate plans if they're just flat out not available? Well, I think you can start off with the, the really simple approach, and if we can design weed control programs where we can reduce reliance on those two active ingredients, that's kind of the first step. So one way to reduce reliance on those active ingredients is, let's say in soybeans, plan on only being able to make one trip over the field with glyphosate. If you think about our typical soybean production system that we've had in place for 25 years, there's two, maybe three applications of glyphosate made to every um, acre of soybeans that has the Roundup Ready trade in it. If we can re reduce the reliance down to one application, we could cut um, reliance, you know, 
state war, excuse me, we could cut reliance across the soybean growing region by at least 50%. So one of the ways that you do that is you increase the reliance on residual herbicides. So full rates of residual herbicides and picking the active ingredients that are designed to control the weeds on that acre is one way to do that. Um, another way to do that, obviously, is to go back to, to tillage if you're in a no-till situation. That can take the burndown application out of the, out of the uh, equation there. Um, you know, there's a number of different things you, that you have to think about when you go back to tillage. That's not as simple as I make it sound, um, but certainly that's, that's one, one aspect as well. You know, another thing to think about, too, is how can we utilize this one trip of glyphosate most effectively? One is spraying the weeds at the right size. Number two would be tank mixing residual herbicides in there that will extend that window of residual control until the soybean canopy can take over. And number three is just making sure your sprayer setup is optimized to make that product work in the best way possible. So we've got three times we're going across that soybean field. What's your, your primary one application of glyphosate with the buildup of the residuals into this? Are you, let's make sure we got a nice post, or you like the burn down, or where are you at on that one application then? When you, when you think about substitute products for glyphosate, if you're a person that it doesn't want to go to tillage, Mm -hmm. All right, I would use glyphosate in the burn down and I would plant a soybean trait that allows me to use glufosinate and other traits post-emergence. Mm -hmm. uh, glufosinate is what we call a, a herbicide that, that works well during hot, uh, sunny weather in the middle mm -hmm. part of the day. It does not work well as a burn down herbicide. Right. So we want to avoid using glufosinate in that burn down, use glyphosate there, use glufosinate post-emergence. If you're in a conventional till situation, then what we'd like to see is a little bit more flexible, but obviously you're gonna use it post-emergence, mm -hmm. but I would use it at the timing where you can expect to have the greatest activity on the weeds that you have present there. So many of the soybean varieties now will have both the glyphosate trait and the glufosinate trait in them. And let's say on spray day, it's 65 degrees and cloudy, and I've got small grasses and broad leaves, you know, two to three inches tall. Um, that would be a day that I'd be more likely to use glyphosate. Yep. If, say, two days later it's going to be 85 degrees hot and humid, mm -hmm. I'd be more likely to use glufosinate on that day. Sure. So you could make some decisions right on the fly there as well mm -hmm. um, if you are, are prepared to, to do that. So with, with the plan to go residuals, which is an area that we've wanted to go for years and stress and you stress i stress as well are we seeing any of those price fluctuations occurring as much on the residuals and and with that the supply or is it primarily uh, glufosinate uh, uh, and glyphosate on that well right now we're, we're hearing about glyphosate glufosinate and to a lesser degree some on on 24d mm -hmm. um, i think if demand were to go up drastically for any one any single AI in that residual mix, um, I'm sure we'd see some price spikes there. Right now, we're hearing that the prices on residuals are about 20 to 30 percent higher than last year, but they're not five to six fold like we're seeing right. with, with glyphosate. Okay. So I was going to ask, you know, on the both corn and bean side, you know, with the shortages going on, you know, a lot of folks may be thinking about, eh, maybe I can't use glyphosate or glufosinate. Should I maybe? 
pivot to some of these older chemistries or different types of chemistries um, post or is there just some kind of advice that you have on that aspect um, or is there different products that maybe they could look at or different things you know yeah yeah that, that's a good question so this again is, is kind of where the challenge comes in mm -hmm. is is now we have to know what weeds we have yeah. and we have really downgraded our ability to identify weeds over the last 25 years mm -hmm. and so I, I think it's really important to you know now to think about all right what weeds broke through what I did this year and what weeds are traditionally a problem in some of these fields and how can I design my residual herbicide around that I think one of the things that makes uh, corn potentially a little bit easier in terms of weed control than soybeans is the fact that we have these atrazine, mesotrione, and group 15 based herbicides that are still, still seem to be in pretty good supply and there's a number of different um, both generic and basic manufacturers out there for those products that we can, we can find those that allow very few weed escapes. So typically if you use a very well-rounded residual herbicide, the most common weed escape that we have in the eastern corn belt is going to be something like giant ragweed, which is very easy to control with, with like a dicamba type of a, of a post-emerge herbicide. Um, I think when we start going with more limited residuals in corn, ones that only have maybe one or two active ingredients in them, then we start to see more of the water hemp, sometimes lamb's quarter, morning glories, and those type of things escape. And that's when our post-emerge weed control becomes a little bit more simple. But the best advice I can give in corn would be to use one of these active ingredients that has at least three actives in it, or excuse me, one of these products that has at least three active ingredients in it, because if that is used at the full labeled rate and we get a nice activating rainfall on that, um, we're just going to see mostly large seeded broadleaf weeds that come through that. Maybe some grasses if we get a really wet spring, but, but mostly the, the large seeded weeds are going to come through that. Yeah, and I guess another thing to bring up too, um, from your standpoint, is just resistant main, you know, resistance management. What kind of impacts will this next year have? You know, telling folks that, you know, maybe don't cut on your rates um, of products that you're using, so we don't have more and more issues down the road. I'm just kind of curious of your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I think to. this is going to make us look like a whole lot better resistance managers than we've ever been in the past, right? Because yeah. we're going to be forced to be more diverse in our weed control programs. So that, that's a good thing. Um, but I do think we need to kind of keep in mind that, uh, you know, a lot of these products we've, we had gone away from using for a number of reasons. You know, one of them could be occasionally there's a, there's a crop variety that's sensitive to an active ingredient. That doesn't show up very often. Um, but, you know, we do have some active ingredients like the bleacher herbicide, like the growth regulators, like the group 15s. Occasionally we have a, a corn hybrid that can be sensitive to one of those. On the soybean side, we occasionally have varieties that are sensitive to metribuzin, yep. to the PPO inhibitors are kind of the two, right. the two main ones there. So we need to be checking with our seed company to see if they have information on variety tolerance, number one. Um, number two, we still have to be cognizant of the fact that we've got to get the right rate of these residuals based on the soil type. So for the soils that are relatively uniform, and relative is a relative term. Um, relative is a relative, relative is Thanksgiving a relative is term. coming up, so all right, that's good to know this. <laughs> you know, where we really have challenges in picking out residual herbicide rates are on these soils where we have sands, mucks, mm -hmm. and beach sands mm -hmm. all in the same field. 
And so if you do have variable rate application technology and you have your field mapped out, that can be a, a really good place to make that work. Um, otherwise, you know, picking the right rate for a muck and a, and a sand in the same field is, is always going always gonna to be a challenge. This is Purdue Crop Chat with Purdue's Sean Castile, Bill Johnson, and Dan Quinn, and your Hoosier Ag Today host, Eric Pfeiffer. I think about some other areas, at least on the soybean front, you know, it's about competition in a lot of ways. And so we have the ability more so maybe than, than corn in this that, you know, if we've had a, a farmer that's been more 30-inch beans. I mean, let's go ahead and all right, either get a 15-inch planer or you double back, right? So you're not doing the, the good old iron-out tillage that you talk about, but you're using iron again to get the rows closed, right? I mean, we're talking, what, in most cases, 25 days faster with a 15-inch row versus a 30-inch row, right? So I think that could be another play with this. Yeah, I, yeah, I think for the folks that are still on, on wider rows, figuring out a way to narrow that row spacing, whether it's, as you said, doubling back on it or... Um, investing in a 15-inch planter yep. or hiring it done, I think that's a that's a great thing to think about. And and what we see is anywhere from about yeah seven to 25 days quicker you'll get canopy closure. Right. Um, so that's a that's a very effective way to uh, to help with late season weed emergence. And then again, you still want to build your residual program up front so you have that weed-free window. Yeah. Um, but certainly in both corn and beans, once we get past six or eight weeks, the canopy is doing the bulk of the weed mm -hmm. control once we get past that time period. So I, I think that's a, that's a great idea. So I, I guess another one that, you know, I, I push timely planting in soybeans. So with all of this, knowing that we've got a limited supply on two of the main products on the herbicide side of things, uh, plus we want to bring in the residual. I mean, are you one to say, I'd like to have a flush of weeds first and then make sure we get them good and killed with the burn down and the residual or, you know, whenever we can plant timely, plant timely, or is that even a, an issue to bring up? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, we could debate this for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> what, um, lots, I've got, I've got new batteries in this thing. Let's go ahead. Let's do it. Get the cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie. Let's go. So, you know, one of the things that we, we talk about with weed control are weed emergence sequences or weed emergence mm -hmm. curves. So you have some weeds that emerge literally as soon as the ground thaws out. Yep. Giant ragweed, foxtail, lamb's quarter. You have other weeds like water hemp, morning glories, are, are two of the ones that I can think of in particular. They t you typically don't see much of those until we get into mid-June. Right. So, you know, one of the things that, that you could talk about from a theoretical standpoint is if you have a good high-yielding field that doesn't respond all that much to planting date, mm. plant that field as late as, as you possibly can because you can take out your weeds with tillage or, or herbicides early in the year. Mm. you got less weeds to deal with in your crop. Um, on the other hand, if you, if you have a field that's strongly, uh, a yield in a field that's strongly influenced by planting date, um, I would get that field planted in such a manner where I can maximize my yield potential sure. and do the best you can with your herbicides. Yeah, and, and I dare say, I mean, it, it is about money, it's about profitability, it's about resistance management, so all that comes into play of what can we do to maximize production, maximize profit, as well as our bottom line for years to come, and so I think that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, so I think one question I have, you know, if I'm a farmer, I'm listening to this podcast, you know, I'm hearing all these different reports. Is there something that you kind of advise a farmer to do right now? You know, do you need to be reaching out to your chemical dealers? Do you need to start having a plan for next year? Kind of what things should they be looking at or looking to do right now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the big message that I talk to people about every time I get a phone call is I say, if you have storage, I would get some of these active ingredients put in storage. 
if you can store it properly and you know which ones you need, you know, an atrazine premix, a glyphosate, a glufosinate product, if you know you're going to use dicamba and corn for giant ragweed, I would get your hands on that stuff right now if at all possible. I think the other thing that, um, that they really need to think about is, okay, in the event that I have um, supply, herbicide supply issues in the spring, do I have two or three options that I can go to? If I can't get plan A in April or May, what's plan B in April and May? Knowing I have these five weeds I've got to control mm -hmm. in, in, you know, 50% of my fields. So I think understanding what active ingredients work, both pre-emerge and post-emerge in that situation is gonna be hugely important as well. And so they, they really need to be understanding what they have in the field. They need to be understanding what some of these older active ingredients can do. And then the other thing they need to understand is, especially with post-emerge herbicides, the adjuvants for some of these older herbicides um, are pretty specific to make them work properly. So they need to make sure they kind of understand this adjuvant technology as well. I think in your in your preparation, that what comes to my mind is some some issue that we have year in year out anyway. Is uh, I'm preaching plant timely, and but we're only able to do either the planting or the herbicide spray. And a lot of guys, I'm pulling the trigger on on planting, but then I've got a carpet of green, and so we have a hard enough time coming back from that in a normal year so then even more so with what you're saying our limited supply okay if you're going to pull the trigger know you've got the ability to handle it right then and there or before yeah I, I think you hit on a real key message there too so one of the things that's been unique about working in the eastern corn belt I worked at the University of Missouri for seven years and then I came over here 20 years ago and one of the things that really surprised me is um uh, in the springtime, how quickly we will pull that planting trigger as soon as as soon as possible, and then you figure out how to control the weeds after you have the seed in the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's so different from what I got used to in the western part of the Corn Belt. I think a, a, a huge issue for folks that have that mindset is, man, once that crop comes out of the ground, you have fewer tools in the toolbox, and am I am, am I capable of dealing with that? Exactly. You know, for example, if we're short on glyphosate, corn comes out of the ground, and we have grass in the corn, what are we going to do to control it? Mm -hmm. If we don't have glyphosate or glufosinate, our only options are older chemistries like Accent. Mm -hmm. um, action, uh, or accent, Option, and Equip. To my knowledge, I think we can only get our hands on Accent right now. Accent is an ALS inhibitor. ALS-resistant foxtail is pretty prevalent in the eastern corn belt. That's why we went to the glyphosate-based corn systems. Mm -hmm. um, soybeans, maybe a little bit more flexibility. If you have grasses that come up, you have the ability to use select, fusion, or sure, herbicides like that. I'm not aware that we have a lot of resistance to those in the Midwest. I know in the Mid-South they have a lot of resistance to those chemistries, but you do have a little bit more flexibility there. So you really need to think about what am I going to do if the crop comes out of the ground and I don't have glyphosate or glufosinate, mm -hmm. because your best option, unfortunately, may be replanting. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And in that, I guess I have one other question on the supply of glyphosate, glufosinate, and some of these are already premixed, and you mentioned that, so I'm curious, and I haven't caught this, so that's why I want to ask, is there a shortage in, in the premixes, or are there, are there making concentrated efforts of having the individual, so then you can kind of a la carte mix it up, or have you heard anything on that? We, I don't think there's, there's much clarity on that topic right now. Okay. We're, we're hearing shortages on both the single active ingredients and many of the premixes that have those ingredients in them. Okay. 
Well, that was going to be my next question is, you know, at this point, obviously with glyphosate, glufosinate in short supply, that's going to raise the demand for others. Could they then become short supply? Have you heard about anything else that might become a problem down the road? And have you also heard that maybe this whole thing could just break up and, you know, things get back close to normal? Yeah, I... You know, the, the rumors floating around um, that they're not going to get back to normal outnumber the rumors that they are <laughs> going to get back to normal. I'm not an expert on, on that topic, so I would, um, if I offered my opinion, it would probably be wrong anyway. Um, but I think you hit on an important point. I think, you know, once the demand for these other products goes up, I think we're going to see certain high-use products like Metribuzin and soybeans, um, like Select and soybeans, um, like some of the atrazine based um, premixes in corn. I think those are either going to become in shorter supply or the price is going to go up because of demand. It's a lot to take in. And again, with, with fertilizer prices doing what they're doing, we covered that on the last podcast. This is going to be uh, perhaps a, a rough season for growers coming in, especially I heard at the beginning of the 2020 crop that it was one of the cheaper crops that they've put in in a long time because they got a lot of the pricing in in, in 2019 and mm-hmm. things were pretty good and and now it's just uh not going to be that way for this 2021 crop that's for sure no i think i was put one you know silver lining that maybe comes out of this a little bit is oh just, i like hope let's bring it in what hope <laughs> have a got? little hope um you know as we talk about the fertilizers and the herbicides it, it may kind of force people to really do some of the kind of more intensive management and pay attention to things very very closely you know whether it be residual herbicides might force people to actually start using those a lot more in-depthly than they have in the past or you know think about the fertilizer aspect you know sampling more regularly and trying to pinpoint fields and trying to put exactly what rates you need at certain areas so this kind of high prices and you know some of this kind of fear going into next year might actually kind of push folks to actually be more cognizant of using some of these different practices that maybe uh, we've been pushing for the last few years. So. Yeah, I think about the farm manager who's who's putting all this together is that they got a field that they've done really, or fields they've done really well on soil fertility, mm-hmm. and they're able to get by. Like, okay, I can cut one year and get by. Hopefully prices will come back down. Um, Bill, your job security is they can't cut on the wheat, the herbicides. I mean, they've yeah. got to have them, so we need that. And so that they're more apt to now they have a price point on a residual that maybe they kind of scoffed at. It's almost better <laughs> price-wise, too, mm-hmm. and to have that full resistance management, weed-resistant management come into play. So I think it's a nice play for someone to become even more keen on their weed control. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, as we alluded to earlier in the podcast, I, I think that this herbicide shortage is, is really going to make us better weed managers. I mean, unfortunately, it's taken this to, to you know, to force sure. us to go back and, and take a, a closer look at it. And, uh, you know, glyphosate was one of the best things that ever uh, came about in terms of uh, making American agriculture sustainable, productive, mm-hmm. and, and easy. And now the shortage of glyphosate is just going to be kind of a reality shock to, to the industry as well. So it may force people from my generation to maybe kind of pay attention to what weeds are out there and what yeah we identifying those we, weeds. We sarcastically <laughs> refer to your generation as the glyphosate babies. <laughs> so now we're going to outgrow that <laughs> and we're going to be. So I need to go back to my books uh, from class and <laughs> start studying go. up. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Johnson, professor of weed science, Purdue Extension. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on today's podcast. A lot of great information, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
Dan, Sean, as we wrap up today's podcast, um, just uh, one note, we are going to be live in person next month at the Indiana Farm Equipment and Technology Expo that's coming December 14th, 15th, and 16th to the uh, to Grand Park at uh, in Westfield. And uh, we're going to do a live podcast recording. The Purdue Crop Chat will be live. We'll take your questions at noon on the 16th. So we hope that uh, folks will show up and and ask you guys some questions, pick your brain, see if they can stump you. That'd be even better. That'd be fantastic on, on my end anyway uh, <laughs> to watch you struggle a little bit. But uh, any final thoughts here as we close out today's podcast? Just a lot of information that we kind of threw at folks today. Sean? I, I think it just goes back to our, our common story across these podcasts is just to know your crop and know know what's coming ahead and so that you can be prepared, right? I think that's what we try to do is give the information out so then we can be prepared to make the best management decision. And so knowing that, I mean, farmers know this more more, more acutely than we do of what the prices have been doing. So they need to go and have those conversations with their ag retailers, see what's available. And if you don't have the storage like Bill talked about, okay, can you lock anything in and, and have the plan? It really goes down to the plan A, B, and really now a C plan. Dan? Yeah, I think I'll echo a lot of what John just said. It just comes back to having a plan. I think that's what we always try to push out in every episode that we try to do, whether it be herbicide management or fertility management or agronomic management during the season. It's just paying attention to things very, very closely, understanding what issues you have, and then how to address some of those challenges moving forward. We'll see you next month, December 16th at noon at Grand Park in Westfield. The Purdue Crop Chat podcast will be live there, and we hope to see you. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us here this month. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. This has been Purdue Crop Chat, a regular series featuring Purdue Extensions, Dr. Sean Castile and Dr. Dan Quinn. In Sean's absence, our thanks to Purdue's Dr. Jim Camberato. Thank you for joining us for Purdue Crop Chat today, moderated by Eric Pfeiffer, and a service of Purdue University Extension and Hoosier Ag Today. Indiana's most listened to farm radio network.